I am here with Nir from Yup. Nir, I'm very excited to have you on the pod. I'm super excited as well. How's everyone doing? Um, I can't wait to dive into Yup, interfaces, protocols, the super dap thesis, all consumer crypto, all the things. Um, but before we do that, maybe you can give a little bit of context on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. Definitely. Uh, I, I started my crypto rabbit hole journey in the Israeli military. I was in military intelligence and had a lot of friends who were really into Bitcoin at the time. This was 2014. Uh, summer of 2016, I landed on Columbia University's campus, already kind of eager to learn more about crypto, but that's when I really discovered Ethereum and decided that I wanted to kind of commit my life and my career to this. Uh, I led Blockchain at Columbia, which is a student lab on Columbia's campus focused on blockchain tech for two years as president. And I was an advisor and mentor to the Columbia IBM blockchain accelerator and, and anything else I could do on campus uh, while I was there. Um, became more and more particularly obsessed with Web3 Social, uh, wrote my undergraduate thesis on decentralized social networks at Columbia, um, and really started working on Yup towards the end of my undergraduate uh, degree. Um, and yeah, I've been working on it ever since, really excited about where Web3 Social is at. Um, I've been involved with various other DAOs and projects and, and I'm an early stage investor as well. Okay, so how would you personally define Web3 Social? Because I feel like everyone has a different definition. Yeah, I, I think for me, the definition is simply social that isn't controlled by a centralized entity, it follows some open standard um in in its various forms so i think we, we see ones that are that are being run by DAOs, where DAOs are really governing the system we're seeing ones that are just simply protocols with 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 no sort of core or governing body um and i think all of those things kind of fall under web3 social i think in the past there was a a definition that had to do with the wallet like if you're signing you know if you're if you're signing in with the wallet then, then something is web3 and i think there's there's somewhat truth to that but you know i think what Blue Sky has shown us, like I, I think Blue Sky is a good example of like a non-crypto, but a Web3 social product that, that certainly requires our attention in the space um, and is very Web3 by the core tenets of Web3. And so for that, for those, because of those examples, I think my definition has changed a bit um, to encompass other players that are maybe more distributed social than Web3 in particular. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. So it's basically like um, social that doesn't have the same level of exploitability as our current social networks. Totally. And I think that that's a spectrum, but that being the threshold, which beyond that, we're, we're in Web3 social territory. And then within that, I think there's a bunch of different um, approaches in terms of how open it is, how censorship resistant it is, how privacy preserving it is, do you own your own data and so on and so forth, I think are all you know, additional questions of, of, in, that determine where you fall in that spectrum. But, but certainly, I think having no centralized like party control the thing is, is the main the main threshold. Mm, yeah. It's funny because in a very different meaning of the word decentralized, um, Web3 Social is also distributed in the sense that I think today um, it is incredibly chaotic. Like I have struggled to adopt almost all Web3 Social platforms because I don't need five versions of Twitter where I need to be publishing either the same shit or something that's totally different. And so... I think Yup has taken like a very specific approach to this, but like more broadly, I'm curious how you think about the current chaotic sort of fractal Web3 social landscape and what that means from like a consumer experience perspective. 
Um, I think I think it's it's exciting and unfortunate simultaneously. I think it's exciting because we're seeing an enormous amount of experimentation in this in this field, and I think it, it, it warrants it. I think it, we're still very early days for Web three social and what it'll end up looking like. And I think um, having as many people experiment with it as possible is, is is definitely the right move at the moment. At the same time, I think it's really unfortunate because it, it limits the user experience. I think social media is something that is very network effect heavy, and so you know, um, not having all your friends on the same platform or having only some of them on, um, those platforms being ones that still have a high friction for non-Web3 users. So most of them, you know, you're signing in with a wallet and so you need to sort of understand Web3 to some extent. Um, I think that really limits and and, and fragments uh, those communities um, in, in a way that I think has, 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 has started to feel a bit, uh, like I think there's there's a bit too much competition happening between them and not enough outwardly competition. I think we need to realize that you know, I'd say Twitter is our is our core competitor rather than each other um, and how we can help each other get there with EVM as the social network rather than any of these one protocols, I think is uh, is the path to success here. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of there's like a weird dynamic going on, which to your point about network effects, I think something that thus far feels like it's been an assumption that's being challenged now is this idea that like, if in social networks, network effects are remote, then really there there probably will be like one protocol that sort of wins it all, um, with, obviously within spe- specific like verticals. But, you know, if there's going to be a decentralized version of Twitter, um, there's probably only going to be one of them instead of having like five different ones. Do you think that's true? Do you think that, that the nature of network effects just makes it so that one protocol will basically dominate and, and particular categories of social? Yes and no. I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I, I think I see it more as the, at the L1 level than, than these social protocols that are being built. I think Ethereum mm-hmm. as the social network or the EVM more broadly as the social network um, makes a lot of sense. I wrote an article called, called EVM Network Effects that really touches on this point. Um, I think EVM, the EVM as a whole seems to be the kind of thing that can grow at the pace to really compete with the network effects of Web2 social in comparison to any of the one protocols on their own. And I think they're all learning that um, that there's an enormous advantage in in adopting each other's standards, right? So, for example, mm-hmm. both Farcaster and Lens are trending towards an ENS direction rather than only managing their own namespaces. That's an example of kind of adopting an EVM identity or an EVM social graph to your existing protocol. Um, you're signing in with ETH, ETH addresses to those platforms. Um, you're using your NFT as your avatar, in, in 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 Lens's case, all the all the minting and and posting and so on and so forth is also happening on chain on Polygon. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of see like every additional experiment like this is kind of growing the EVM pie and the EVM social network is growing. That's certainly how we're approaching it at Yup, and we're seeing that in in the in the Yup experience as well. So, you know, Yup being a Web three social aggregator that aggregates all these protocols, um, people's experience feels much more uniform. It's not fragmented. They're not missing any content from their friends that are happening on these individual platforms. But even more so, they're not starting from scratch in terms of social graph, follower graph, interests. Those are things that we already know a lot about them based on their on-chain activity and their and their and their uh, behavior on these other platforms. So you really get this compounding value of bringing it all together. Where Yup is a better experience because Lens and Farcaster, Blue Sky, et cetera, are existing in one place, and not despite the fact that there are multiple ones. Um, uh, and the other thing I think is really cool is how they're able to kind of experiment in different directions, try out different things. Um, you know, I think in, on Lens's case, we've seen a lot more uh, monetization features. And so we might see versions of that make it to whatever is the winning protocol 
Um, similarly, on the Farcaster side, I think we've seen some some really cool things in terms of social context around minting and stuff like that, which I think we want to touch on a bit later. Um, so yeah, I think uh, we we may see one one winner take all, but I think it would be an error to assume that that because in the past that was something like Facebook, then in this case it would be something like Farcaster. I think it very well may be something like the EVM, uh, ERC standards, things like that is actually the core the core network. Yeah, it feels like the thing that you're, uh, regardless of which layer you think wins all, there is some protocol that ends up um, basically owning these different social graphs. And I think that is a very interesting dynamic. When you mention Yup, like for anyone who isn't familiar, um, maybe you can give a little bit of context on what you mean when you say aggregating Web3 social and what that actually looks like. Because I think currently in the market, Yup is the easiest way to basically engage with all of these. And I want to get into some of the dynamics around that, but maybe you can give a little bit of context first. Definitely. So like you mentioned, Yup is a Web3 social aggregator. What that means is you're you're essentially getting a feed or a set of feeds that uh, aggregate content from platforms like or protocols like Lens, Farcaster, Mirror Articles, NFTs that your friends are minting, and now Blue Sky, um, filtered in, in different subjects, but also the ability to actually post and cross-post to those platforms as well. So you're actually able to, you know, in the same way that you would in, in traditional social on something like Buffer, you're able to essentially post once and it will post to all those all those platforms at once, comment on posts and, and, and engage with them across those platforms. So um, not only is 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 the content of your friends all in one place, but you're actually able to engage with it, create content yourself, and so on, all from one place. And creators, especially, have found this to be incredibly useful. I think we're the only place at the moment that you're able to cross-post in this fashion. Um, and like you said, I think probably the best place to engage with these platforms simultaneously at the moment. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about this is like you know today that type of aggregation makes a ton of sense, and maybe in the future, like a couple of protocols will win it all and. I don't know, maybe you'll have specific applications for each one of them. But what I think it really like emphasizes is this idea around interfaces being unique um, and kind of separate from the protocol itself, which I think, yes, like people use Buffer for anyone who isn't familiar. That's like a social media management platform. Basically, you can post to like different like Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Yes, those exist, but they're not like the norm. And I would imagine that an Instagram or a Twitter or a Facebook don't love the idea of people using those because it bites into like ad revenue and things. Um, it feels like with social protocols, we're kind of looking at a very different dynamic where actually, you know, um, Lens wants people to build front ends. Warpcaster, is Farcaster officially called Warpcaster now or is Warpcaster the client? What is technically the... Yeah, Warpcast is just the client. Yeah, Farcaster is the protocol. Okay, so like the the fact that they have different names even is fascinating. That used to not be the case, right? So it feels like um, there's something that's unique about Web3 Social that allows for this type of interface development and like encouragement of interface development. what do you think it is? Like what's actually different about Web3 Social that's making that possible? Totally. So first, I want to touch on the Buffer thing just so people have more clarity. Buffer is, a, is like a B2B SaaS tool that allows like uh, social media managers to cross-post to multiple platforms at once. Uh, it's insanely limited in the integrations that you have compared to Web3. So that's like a massive advantage that we have on our end. So for example, like pulling streams of, of content, like creating a feed based on the content of people you follow on those platforms, undoable connecting more than a certain amount of accounts, undoable, 
um, following people or doing any action, like commenting, replying to a post, anything like that from, from Buffer, not doable, right? So very, very limited. And that has a lot to do with the, with the walled gardens of, of Web2 Social uh, that really limit uh, uh, Buffer's ability to give you like a fully integrated experience the way that we can. On Yep, basically any feature you could do on Farcast, on Warpcast to integrate with the Farcast, to engage with the Farcaster protocol, you can do on Yup to engage with the Farcaster protocol. And that's a massive advantage. Um, to your point about, you know, the 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 web3 social paradigm around um how protocols are treating clients on top of them i think this is this is really really true right and we're seeing not only do they do they want you to build on them they're they're encouraging you they're spending a lot of their time on biz, biz um, um, developer relations and really really making sure that it's easy for you to do it they're, they're almost counting on you doing it i think the best exa- the best uh, uh indicator of this is that both lens and blue sky by the way, Blue Sky's protocol is called At Protocol, so they have a very similar situation with like a different name. Um, but both Lens and Blue Sky have open source their apps, right? So clearly, there's no desire to monetize or capture a lot of value or moat around around the consumer app. They, I, the, the reverse, I th- I'd say they're trying to make it as easy as possible for new developers to start building clients on top of it. Um, and I think that's going to lead to a renaissance of like very feature specific uh, clients that people are very eager to use or very feature specific interfaces that people are very into. Uh, one of my favorite examples from a few years ago is uh, there was a project called old Instagram that basically gave you like the version one of Instagram. Uh, and it was doing really well on the app store until Facebook shut it down. Right. And so I feel like in this new world, we're going to see a lot of examples of those things that I think will be really exciting. Like give me the vintage version of lands or give me Farcaster with only the first thousand users or give me a version of Blue Sky that's just videos. Right. I think the ability to do those things in mass at scale with re- reliably knowing that you won't be, uh, you know, blocked in the future, you know, uh, you denied access in the future to some API or restricted in some fashion, like. The, the ability to know as a, as a builder that you can build on something with longevity, um, I think will, will incite people to build a lot of really exciting stuff in that fashion. We're already starting to see it a little bit. I think us as an aggregator is a great example. You know, I think what Discove is doing with uh, like uh, SQL feeds where you can really create customizable feeds for, for the, for the Farcaster power user, I think is another uh, great example on blue sky. They have something called gray sky, which has really robust, like filtering mechanisms, stuff like that, trying to be for power users. And so I'm just very excited for those, for those kind of features and use cases and, and excited to see what that looks like in the context of completely, completely new experiences, right? Maybe something that's like social finance or related to some, some governance activity. I think, I think all of that stuff is, is a uh, fair game and we'll continue to see a lot of really cool experiments. The approach that we're taking is that, you know, while these things are still small and, and certainly at scale, having one consumer product that's reliably great that engages that you can engage with content from your friends anywhere um, is something that's really valuable. You know, I think we, we've our, our main focus is not necessarily to aggregate a lot of platforms, but to allow you to have direct contact and communication with your audience and your friends, your followers and so on and so forth um, in a way that's platform agnostic. And, and that's really what Yup as an aggregator enables you to do is you'll see your friends' content regardless of where they posted it. You'll see what they're minting and so on and so forth. And, um, and even if they are denied access to one platform or they're not using one platform, they move to another, that's not gonna change your experience as long as they're identified in the same fashion, your social graph relationship with them is platform agnostic, right? As a lot of these things become standards that that transcend the one protocol um so does your engagement with your friends and, and connections regardless of which protocol you're doing it on and yup really enables that at scale 
Yeah, I want to talk about what it means to be able to pull in all of those different feeds and different types of data. But like, before we even do that, I think something that fundamentally powers a lot of that dynamic around like Buffer and Instagram, for example, is that Instagram mostly makes money off of ads. So it would never make sense for them to allow for a feed style of interface on top of Instagram, because that would just fully, that means Buffer eats their lunch for no good reason. Um, to some degree, it makes sense to like make it easier for people to post on Instagram, because again, that pulls more people in, but that feels, the economics there feel very much like the limiting factor where effectively like distribution and time in app is the way that these, these types of social networks are monetizing. What feels uniquely different to some degree about Web3 is the assumption that you can then capture value at the protocol level rather than at the interface level. Um, so the basic question there is like, what are you monetizing? Because if you're not monetizing attention in app, then it's like, okay, well, how are you making money as a protocol? And then I think on top of that, the question becomes, how are interfaces monetized? So I'm curious how you think about monetization at both the protocol layer and then also at the interface layer. Yeah, and this might be surprising to a lot of people. I, I find the protocol layer to be more tricky in terms of monetization than the interface layer, which I think is like counterintuitive to what a lot of people think in, in Web3. I think there's like this really famous almost meme at this point, uh, investor thesis around fat protocols and really like a lot of value accruing around the protocol. I actually think there's a much stronger moat and an opportunity to monetize at the consumer level. But on the protocol side, you know, I think uh, while while ads don't make a lot of sense, I think things like fees in various forms uh, do, and, and we'll see that happen at scale. I think a good example of that that we're seeing right now is Zora. You know, Zora is like a very open source, open protocol for minting NFTs. Um, and they charge a fee associated with people who are minting those NFTs. I think the fee is quite small. But if you if you match that with with I think their most successful product right now, which is like free mints or very cheap mints that are happening at a massive scale where people come and mint like fifty thousand of them or whatever, that can become a really strong way of making money. I'm curious how much Zora has specifically made on that, but I think that's a good example where you know you and I could just fork Zora tomorrow. We could go and build our own thing. None of it is uh, none of it is uh, is proprietary. It's by design very open and, and permissionless. Um, but they're still able to charge a fee given their moat, given the faith that people have in those protocols, the trust in those smart contracts and the, and the network effects and, um, and uh, distribution that comes from using that version of it. Right. And I think this is, this is an interesting thing that we want to touch on a bit later, but like, you know, in, for example, in the case of Zora, when, if you mint your NFT through Zora versus a forked version of Zora, that NFT, if people mint it will show up on Farcaster notifications, it will show up on, mint.fun it'll show up on various places that are already doing a good job of like serving that and giving that 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 mint that nft whatever it is distribution and i think similarly will similar things will happen here where you could imagine essentially farcaster lens whatever charging a fee for some action that's happening on the protocol itself maybe it's minting an nft as well but it could be something else entirely um and uh even though we could go and fork those protocols ourselves we're going to want to use the larger versions because they're adopted by a substantial amount of people. We want other people to see that. We want other people to be able to showcase those things. We kind of want to follow as many standards as we can to gain distribution. Um, and so even though, uh, you know, there was this big like uh, hyperstructures article that, that, that Jacob Horn put out back in the day, this, this whole thesis of like, 
you know, essentially pro- like protocols shouldn't have a fee. The threat of the fee is what makes them mon- is what makes them valuable and so on and so forth is not something that I really agree with. I think that fees are totally fine and protocols that have moats should charge fees. I think a great example is ENS. ENS charges fees for every domain that you create. There's kind of like a tokenomics reason for that or the, like a, I would say like a scout, uh, uh, squat resistant reason for it, but it is a form of monetization which creates a really strong revenue stream for that DAO and, and that protocol. And I think um, is an example of like, well, there's nothing stopping us from forking ENS, but clearly ENS has a really strong moat that's well-established with distribution. My identity will show up on all these, you know, 100 dApps uh, and so on and so forth. Um, it's being used by big platforms like Coinbase and so on and so forth. So I think just you can establish moats while still being open source and then charge fees on top of those. Um, even, if, even if it feels that people could fork it, the moat there is really strong. Um, on the app side, I, I, I kind of find it more clear because I, I'm, I firmly believe that if you're built, if you're giving people a consumer experience that they love and, and they use your app on a regular basis, then small fees associated with convenience and ease is something that people will be very uh, fine with. I think the best example of this is MetaMask making over three hundred million dollars uh, in 2021. You know, a lot more money than the protocols that they integrate on top of. Uh, in, in the case of swaps, like you know, the the MetaMask company is making more money than the Uniswap company in relation to swaps happening on Uniswap because of the additional fee that MetaMask adds on their wallet. And remember, users that are using MetaMask, all they need to do is go to uniswap.org and they wouldn't be paying that fee or go to matcha.xyz and they wouldn't be paying that fee, right? There's like a million places where they could go and easily not pay that fee. They don't need to fork anything. They don't need to do anything as a consumer. And just for the sake of convenience, they'd rather swap directly from the, the wallet they're on I know that this is how Rainbow plans on making money in other wallets as well. And I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, users will happily pay small fees on those things. Uh, and then lastly, I would add subscriptions. You know, I think what, what Musk has done with Twitter and sort of started a trend that now is going to Facebook and other social media platforms, I think is one that's very healthy and good. Ideally, even if, even if ad revenue is still a large portion of, 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 of your business model, the more that you can stray away from that, the less there'll be misaligned incentives. And so I think even the Web2 social platforms are seeing that. Uh, I think Web3 Web consumer social products will definitely leverage that as well. You know, I think when people ask me how Yelp will make money, those are some, certainly things that we explore long term, I think, like subscriptions and fees associated with transactions. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because like in the Web2 context, you don't have these kinds of microtransactions happening all the time. So if you don't want people to have to pull out a credit card, you basically need to figure out a way to make money off of them and their time instead of having them pay, or at least the barrier to getting them to pay is just a lot higher. It is kind of fascinating that in Web3, because you have, you're collecting NFTs, even if they're free, you're paying gas, like there is this element of, I'm already paying for something, what's 0.0007 ETH, or I can't remember exactly what Zora's fee is, but something like that on top of it, it's very, it's marginally very small and almost not noticeable. And I think MetaMask is similar, right? If you were signing a transaction and MetaMask was taking a fee every time you sign, which like for anyone who isn't familiar, signing doesn't cost gas, I think it would be a very different dynamic. And so I, I do think that there's a very, I I didn't really consider that before, but I think like the monetization paths there make a ton of sense and having fees at the protocol layer then makes a lot more sense as well. Um, but that does kind of make me wonder, like, are, are we as consumers just going to get used to having to pay to do a bunch of shit online? Like there was definitely a period of time where 
um, Web3 consumer apps were abstracting away gas, particularly for like L2s. Um, I think NBA Top Shot um, abstracted away all notion of gas and that ended up being a very successful Web3 consumer app. And so um, I'm curious how you think about like that dynamic where, yes, we might be able to monetize off of microtransactions and there's a chance that some of the biggest Web3 social apps actually end up having no gas involved. Totally. And to the microtransactions thing, I think this is the most under underappreciated Web3 use case is microtransactions. Like PayPal can't process a payment without making at least $1.50 or $2 or whatever it is. They just can't. But, but Web3 is a completely new paradigm where I could charge you half a cent and be profitable over hundreds of millions of transactions, whatever that half a cent is, you know? And that's a completely new paradigm that, that I think really changes things. So not only not, like, and I'll, I'll touch on the fact that people are more used to fees and the issue with that, but I think also the fact that fees can be so much smaller at the unit level, at the marginal level, fees can be a lot smaller. It's something that I think people will feel more comfortable with, especially if you're already paying for something, right? So if I can have a processing fee or convenience fee or, or service fee, that's, that's like less than 1%, less than half a percent for a small transaction. And that's still profitable for me and feels negligible for the user. I think is something that um, will be really successful. Um, to your point about people getting used to the, the internet being free. I think this is one of the hardest like pain points for crypto is that everything costs money. I think that really limits a large group of people. I think, you know, those of us who are in it and have been in it for a while, we've, we've kind of normalized ourselves, but I don't expect the rest of the world to ever get to that place where it's just like they're used to spending a few dollars to do anything. I mean, the fact that people are actively voting on something like NounsDAO blows my mind. People spend $3 to vote is, is, is a really interesting thing. And I think really hurts us. I remember when Snapshot initially came out, how excited I was to see that just any mechanism for people to vote using on-chain data without having to vote on-chain uh, that I thought was really revolutionary. Um, and, and, and I think this really hurts us in a social context. Uh, the, the most recent example that I've been, that I've been diving deep to is uh, subdomains and domains. So ENS, very well established. We, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, probably mentioned it a few more times, definitely a big fan. Um, ENS has subdomains. Those subdomains have been used to some extent in the space the, the like ENS subdomains have the opportunity to be a way for us to align as a community. Like a part of me feels like they might be the next 10 K PFPs as a form of socially identifying with a community in a way that's in every post and every profile. Um, and that can be done on chain and is quite scarce. And, you know, it's tied to, to a community in that way. So instead of being near.eth, I might be near.yup.eth or near.nouns.wtf or whatever it is, uh, leveraging ENS to do that. The challenge and the reason I think we haven't seen this at scale so far is that ENS is expensive because of gas, right? Now, here comes the Blue Sky team with the CEO who's ex-Zcash applying a lot of things that have worked for us for Web3, but in a way that's actually applicable to like in a Web1 context almost, and is actually doing this with DNS. And what we're, the, the level of experimentation we're seeing around subdomains on Blue Sky is mind-blowing and moving at such a fast pace and is solely moving faster because it's free in my opinion meaning i can link my account without paying gas i can create a thousand subdomains without creating without without paying gas i can delete a thousand subdomains without without paying gas and so my desire to experiment is much higher at the the pace i can experiment and the, and the friction associated with experimentation is much higher and then a lot of social social value and social alignment and communities are being formed around that 
that you know memes that are forming around those domains and stuff like that that I think are really cool. Um, and so I think that's that's just like a classic example where the the gas is really holding us back from providing a, a social experience that I think can be really valuable. Um, and but yes, totally. I think the fact that like the Zoras of the world uh, are able to charge a fee, um, my, it's probably easier to this audience, an audience that's used to paying gas, that's used to paying fees, and that might be more difficult later on. My guess is that'll end up being something similar to where we are in, in traditional tech, consumer tech or, or SaaS, which is, you know, you can pay a fee each time or you can pay a subscription model. It gives you access to X amount of, you know, transactions, votes, whatever, whatever the thing is that you're paying for, mints, whatever. And, um, and you just play a subscription, right? So I, I don't think we've moved, like there was a big clash between free and paid on the internet, I think something like 15 years ago. And we, we replaced it with subscriptions. I don't think we, we replaced it with just free. We get we replaced it with something that feels free on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's kind of where where crypto needs to get to. Um, doesn't mm-hmm. matter how many Netflix movies I watch, I paid a subscription and I should be able to watch as much as I want. I think that's kind of the consumer experience that people want. And once Web3 gets there, I think monetizing around subscriptions makes sense as well. Yeah, and I guess like the other early versions where we're seeing this play out in traditional Web2 social is like Twitch and TikTok having like, um, I don't know if they call them donation features, but the features where you can, if someone is streaming, like give them money. Tipping. Yeah, that type of dynamic is kind of interesting. And I feel like that is a more recent, um, like the last few years, I, I feel like that prior was not something that at least was on my radar. So that it's is a passion dynamic. economy. Mm. Yeah. Like a passion economy, Patreon. I think Patreon is like the, the main startup that pushed this originally, but certainly I think it's quite prevalent in crypto for, for fun, for like the FinTech reasons that, you know, like the DeFi part of crypto. Um, I know that like Twitter has had it for a while with the, with the super subscriber stuff and, and things like that, that I think are quite interesting and actually, incorporated Twitter in that. And and that seems to be the one killer feature of Nostra right now. Nostra is another Web3 social protocol, not so different from Blue Sky, but leveraging kind of Bitcoin keys and it's kind of more Bitcoin adjacent. Um, and people are tipping in Bitcoin on that platform. It seems to be like their, their one killer feature. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think in, in a world where your social identity is also your account, you know, it's also your cash app, it's also your Venmo. Um, I expect to see a substantial amount of like passion economy activity of people like just tipping, supporting things without expecting nothing in return. Um, and and um, I think a lot of the mirror experiments we saw fall in that category, like a lot of the Kickstarter stuff that was happening in crypto at the peak, I think is is another example of that. Um, I think we'll keep we'll keep on seeing that. I think my issue is people people don't talk about the size of those use cases enough. Like another one that's mentioned a lot is like status. People just wanting status within a community as being a, a really valuable thing you could offer them. I think both status and um, uh, they and and, um, and tipping they're interesting. They're just not multi-billion-dollar business models, right? And I think that's the issue I have with it. Like you know, people are like oh, you can build a whole model. Like you know, I think the nouns and the other protocols of like there's going to be status associated with the most valuable ones. And that's going to kind of pay off for everything else. Well, like all of Basquiat's collection, Basquiat is one of the most important artists of all time. His whole collection is worth less half than half a billion dollars. Like Coinbase makes that in a month. You know what I mean? It's just not, it's not big enough to support these business use cases, in my opinion, um, both status and, 
Yeah, and uh, tipping. But I think they're really interesting, and I think we'll, we'll continue to see them. I think gifting is a really interesting one, definitely. Like people gifting each other NFTs and stuff like that as a form of tipping or as a form of acknowledgement, as a form of like poking the way you wrote on Facebook. Those kinds of things I think are really cool. Um, yeah, I just wouldn't expect tipping to happen at like a multi-billion dollar scale uh, mm-hmm. or anything like that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I think is funny about all of the Web3 social stuff that I've been thinking about a lot along those lines is... I think one of the things that is unique is maybe like we don't need to build billion dollar businesses. Um, When I think about like the types of experiences that are social that Web3 enables, I think about something like the FWB app, which I think is also like at, to me at least, like the frontier of what some of this might mean. It's a very like intimate, cozy little app. It's not trying to be the next Instagram or whatever, it's intended to be this like digital space for a community of people. And some of that makes me wonder, you know, how much of these like social protocols and interfaces um, should be serving huge markets versus building these like very niche types of communities that just are not intended to scale in the way that Web2 social scales. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. I love the FWB app, love what they're doing. I think I'd love to see more experimentation like that. I think my expectation long term is like things like that will be built on these protocols in some fashion. Like building and managing the FWB app is is much more difficult than if you just essentially built like a Farcaster client that filters for just FWB members or something. Um, it would just be easier backend to manage and would scale better. And my content could actually show up in, in a larger public setting in terms of distribution if I wanted to. Um, and, and I think that would be really interesting. So I expect it to kind of end up in that, in that phase. And I would, I would guess that if the protocols were further along, that that would be something that FWB would do. Um, and so I, I'm a big believer in this future. I just think it's based on these protocols that enable you to do that at scale. You know, FWB mm-hmm. is lucky to have a lot more money than the average community. And I think that enables them to, to have this kind of development. Uh, also maybe a lot of great builders within the community. Um, but I expect in the future that we to see a lot of things like that, but built on top of, of existing protocols. What you said about not needing billion dollar businesses, I think that's the strongest argument. Like people, we assume that just because there's a lot of value to create within Web3 Social, that that value is going to accrue to the businesses. When in my my belief is actually the people are the new businesses, people are the new platform. So like people will make a lot of value in Web3 Social. I think it's just going to accrue at the individual level rather than at the platform or the or the or the protocol level in my opinion um and that's okay right and it, it's it's okay if these businesses are a bit smaller but value is created i think blue sky being a nonprofit is a good example of that there's absolutely no corporation that that manages our profits from blue sky at all which is quite different than than the way that uh a forecaster and lens have, a, have approached it with the both venture-backed businesses um so I think that that's, that's another example where like, you know, Blue Sky has been able to create real enthusiasm, a real mission, a real culture, a real community, grow at a substantial scale, have developers be building on top of it without a token, without venture backing, without even a corporation with a future idea of, of, of profits. Um, now, it doesn't mean they can't change, change their minds halfway. And we've certainly seen situations like that, like with OpenAI and whatever. And so... You know, yeah. you know, I think I think the beauty of of protocols is like even if they did change their mind halfway, they wouldn't be able to like 
censor Yup from using it or, or stop anyone else from using it from what they built so far, but it would definitely misalign incentives. Um, so yeah, I think like, uh, yeah, I, in, in general, I would say like, uh, it, it's totally fine if these businesses aren't as big. I don't think it's stopping them from creating great use cases. And I think if you're able to really build something valuable, builders want to build on top of it. People want to integrate it. We want to aggregate it. Um, and it can work without billions of dollars in ad revenue. Yeah. So. There's definitely a, <clears throat> there's a weird dynamic in web two around scale and distribution where I think it's really hard to monetize unless you have huge amounts of distribution. Um, it feels like that dynamic is flipped a little bit to the to what we were talking about earlier around monetizing at both the protocol layer and the interface layer. If you if you're not well, hmm. I was gonna say if you're not monetizing something like um, time via like ads, then maybe like you don't need that type of massive distribution. That being said, in the context of something like microtransactions, that's not necessarily true. Like if you are actually, sorry, someone's being very loud. Um, if you are actually monetizing based on very, very small microtransactions, like maybe distribution actually does still matter a lot. Um, and frankly, I'm, I'm not sure that Web3 has figured out the distribution stuff yet. So if you assume that a lot of the network effects accrue to the protocol layer and interfaces are kind of built on top of it, um, the assumption there is like, okay, well, distribution is technically like the consumer is interacting with an interface, but the actual distribution is at the protocol level which doesn't really feel like that's actually the dynamic going on. I don't know. I, I really can't figure out in my head how you'll have many different interfaces and still have really great discoverability and distribution of content in Web3. Well, I think the advantage is that the, the protocols allow the, 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 the interfaces to decide what to show and not show. And I think that it will really come up to the interfaces, uh, creativity and innovation that I think will we'll solve that issue of like, Okay, how do I build something that maybe gives me that intimate feeling of a sub audience, like a subgroup, like I'm looking for an FWB, but in a way that doesn't require me to make a new account, add a new avatar, have a new bio, have a new social graph, but I can actually leverage an existing one and still keep it limited, still have those posts be private, right? Like something that still maintains the full experience that I want people to have in the sub community while leveraging the distribution and the standards of a larger protocol. Um, so that it's easier for my users to sign up so that my, my users can get more distribution when they want to post elsewhere. Um, that if my app dies, the content associated with that doesn't die. Right. I think the, those kind especially for those subgroups makes a lot of sense. Like I could totally see, I don't think they need to, cause it's a great app, but you could totally see a world where FWB deprecates their app and moves in a different direction. I think as a social community, they might do a million things, right. They're not like tied to this thing, even though it seems to be great. The risk of that happening, like me as a creator on that platform, even in a sub-community, there's less of an incentive to establish myself, to build that social graph, to follow all my friends, right? And needing to do that from scratch for every single, every individual one, I think is a massive challenge. So I think these are going to be the cases where it's like, okay, bring your social graph, bring this thing you're already comfortable with to something that we're building that might be shorter term, smaller community, smaller distribution without limiting you in some fashion that reduces your social graph, reduces your, your, your you know, the, the longevity of your content long-term and stuff like that. And, and also your reach with those posts, if you want to 
reach people outside of that sub community without needing to do a lot of extra work. So yeah, I think distribution will be very important. The funny, of course, dynamic that that starts to bring up is what does it mean to have multiple different identities across this like interoperable layer where, you know, the way that I show up on Twitter is actually quite different from the way that I show up on Instagram. And that's intentional because Twitter is much more, I think the word professional in crypto would maybe be an overreach, but I definitely have a different vibe on Twitter than I do on my Instagram. And so from that perspective, you know, for something like Yup that's pulling in several different feeds and, and other front ends that are doing something similar or other interfaces, um, I'm curious how you think about identity and what it means to sort of have different identities across different platforms and contexts. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer that, that people should be able to have a lot of identities. I think this is my biggest issue with like, KYC approaches to symbol resistance. I think things like WorldCoin and stuff like that don't really enable something like this, not just for one person to have multiple identity, multiple people to have one identity, those kinds of things I think that are really relevant um, to say that, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto doesn't have an identity because he hasn't identified himself as a human or herself as a human or themselves, I think is a mistake. Like clearly there's an identity with real value, with real, you know, whatever, um, regardless of whether they're human or not. And I think we're definitely going to move further in that world uh, further in that direction. Um, the way we're approaching it at Yup, I think is, is is really from a customizable and modular approach. I think at scale, users will be able to uh, seamlessly move between accounts, connect accounts in very nuanced ways, ident- connect connect I, connect identities that they own privately. So you might be you might you might want to connect your Instagram so you can get the social graph without necessarily having to be a part of your profile because you want to represent yourself differently, right? I think that's really our advantage. Is like without having to build a lot of the mess at the protocol level, we're able to build a lot of really valuable experiences for the user at the consumer level uh, by not being limited in those ways, right? So however you choose to link your accounts and show yourself in, in multiple ways um, but, and not just with one account is something we definitely want to enable. Um, and so for, for example, right now, you're able to link accounts on Yup and post to those protocols. We're adding a feature where you're able to link multiple ETH addresses. So if you have other ETH addresses that you want to be associated with yours, you will be able to. And now we're exploring some some privacy-preserving way of doing similar things so that you'll be able to get to a place where, you know, maybe you have two 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 accounts, one that is each which is showcasing different things, but both that leverage from the activity you've done on both, I think, or something like that. It'd be really interesting. Do you think that will ultimately have these like weird little graphs where like one identity that I have is associated with certain social networks and it uses, you know, lens, but not Farcaster. And another identity is like my, you know, more private identity and they just have like no link at all. And I just have these weird, like disparate graphs. Yeah. Uh, I think they'll have they'll have some link because of the benefits of of them being sort of composable or interoperable in some fashion. Um, I I would even say like there's a lot of that already happening in our traditional social experiences. We just don't really think about it. Like your email, some of your email addresses are tied to certain ones, and others are tied to different ones. You've set aside certain email addresses for different things, and the inbox and things associated with that, like the security associated with that email. Do you have two FA on it? Is it safe? you know, the domain associated with that email, but then also, you know, uh, the content you want to consume when you're looking at your inbox are all reasons that you would choose a different email to connect to different things. It's just that that's happening very privately and and, in a way that feels very native to us. And Web3 is happening very publicly in a way that doesn't feel very native to us at the moment. 
But I think ultimately at scale, it's just going to be like, like our ethos, like the address and the wallet part of it will feel really boring, almost email like, like very happening behind the scenes and very private. And how you show yourself public will be much more with like those identities and, 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 and might be separated, might be connected in some way, depending on you. I think like Plaid is another good example of this. Like you're connecting multiple bank, you know, you're connecting one bank account to multiple apps, whether it's a portfolio tracker app or trading app like Robinhood or whatever. Um, and Plaid was able to build a multi-billion dollar business off that because there's such an advantage to not needing to deposit, like not needing to move money elsewhere or prove that I own an account with a wire or whatever other reason, whatever people were doing before Plaid. I think similarly here, it's going to be that kind of thing. And then really up to the user, how they want to connect uh, various things to, to various whatever's, you know, which bank account, which email address to what identity and, and app. I am very curious to see, like, when I think about, you know, how I connect accounts and what my, like, Web2 identity graph probably looks like. I'm sure there are, like, way more connections, even with, like, IP address. You know, like, you can see, okay, totally. this person is using the same IP address and they're using multiple different emails. But the to your point, like, the interesting thing about a lot of those is that they're private. Like, really, they're ideally are very few parties who know my IP address and what I logged in with. Um, and so I think the weird thing to me about web three is that because all of this stuff is public, um, these links are happening in a way where anyone can see them. And I was thinking about this the other day in the context of, um, Reddit, because Reddit is one of the few places where I think you actually see this within a platform because you engage as a user with a ton of different ideas you do this in other places, but Reddit feels uniquely true where like you post in certain um, subreddits, you comment, you, you know, you just, you engage in these like really strange and often disparate types of communities, but it's all under one linked account. Um, and the funny thing about Reddit is that you can click through, like if you make a comment on something on Reddit, I can click through and figure out a lot more about you than I usually can through like Twitter. And I feel like we're starting to build towards that in this in this web three social graph where not only can I see that you're posting on Farcaster, but I can also see that you have, you know, 10 ETH deposited in yearn on optimism. And that definitely feels like a scary dynamic. Like it, it feels like you can figure out a lot more about people. Um, are you concerned about that? Like when you think about what that means to build a consumer experience, like, is there a level of, maybe don't post whatever the fuck you want as a consumer because people can go through and learn a lot about you a lot more than they usually can. Yeah. Well, first of all, I love that framing of Reddit as being like obscure, but highly stockable. Like it's not, it's not really clear who you are right away, but if I wanted to go deep, I could really understand a lot about you by the way you're engaging with these different sub sub subreddits. I definitely totally agree with that. And I think it's a, it's a, a very apt comparison to kind of where web three is at where it feels super anonymous and kind of obscure. What's this, what's this hex address and like, who am I and whatever. But at the same time for anybody who understands it or goes even like one step to Etherscan or whatever, I can really see everything. Right. Uh, I think this is like a, a midway point. I think at scale, we'll see solutions to this. I think I'm particularly excited about things like Sysmo and Disco. Sysmo is kind of like a way to do like privacy preserving at the station NFTs that prove what you've done. Uh, with and, and tie them to a different identity. So you could have like a public ETH address that you're okay with being doxxed at that has proven attestations associated with another ETH address that you own. And Disco being a similar thing, just relatively off-chain using verified credentials uh, that can either be public or private. That I think is really compelling. That sort of data backpack thing and, 
and people are looking at linking accounts. So for example, and so where I think we'll move is to a place, it's kind of like a synthesis uh, and like thesis, antithesis, synthesis situation where like, I think in traditional social or traditional internet, you know, the thesis is, is, is pretty private at the moment that crypto came in and is very public. But I think the final scale will be like, like publicly provable private information. And I think that's way cooler and way more interesting than either of these where in, in traditional social, there was no way for me to like prove something I've done on another identity, leverage that thing that I've done from another platform in a public or private manner. Um, and crypto is going to give us that is already giving us that in the public manner and eventually will in a private manner in a way that I think is, is really valuable um, uh, for the user. I think it is an important thing though, to mention to consumers, especially people who are new to crypto, Hey, the things that you're doing are public. People can see it and so on and so forth. Um, there's parts of it. I personally really like, I think like receipts from a meme standpoint is really interesting alongside. I think we've seen a lot of really interesting, like, scammers get outed because of stuff they're doing like they're talking one way on twitter and at the same exact timestamp they're doing something completely different on chain i think those things are really interesting commentary with what's happening on chain in the context of this stuff um anonymous social like we've seen in the past with like yik yak and stuff like that but with real credentials i think makes a really killer feature like if i can if i can prove i have a million followers on twitter and then with that kind of post anonymously i think that can become a really interesting um feature, use case, product, whatever. It's almost like what QAnon is, but real. Like you could kind of prove you are actually an FBI agent and then and then and then spread a bunch of conspiracy theories rather, you know what I mean? Like the fact that you that you'd have a mechanism for proving it that is platform agnostic and and privacy preserving, I think is a really interesting thing. And so we might see a lot of that stuff like, hey, I'm high up at Google, here's a credential proving that I am that's privacy preserving. And now I'm like shit posting with you knowing that I'm like a VP at Google somewhere, right? Without me identifying myself, I think will make for really cool consumer experiences. So I think that's the end state. And a lot of users that aren't aware of that need to be made aware because the worst nightmare is like finding out stuff is public that you didn't think is, stuff that's going to last forever that you don't know how to take down and, and so on and so forth. So definitely a big roadblock, I think, for, for larger audiences. But over time will be a really exciting feature. Yeah, as we wrap up, I think this is like one final topic that I just wanted to touch on. A lot of that feels like it comes down to helping when it comes to consumer experiences, like actually helping visualize what's happening on chain. Um, that's something that I have been thinking a lot about, both from like, a you know, the work that I do with Metropolis standpoint, but also more broadly, I think Yup is doing a really interesting job here of just like, how can we make what's on chain more obvious to people? And to some degree, I think like, that that question around how much should consumers be made aware and cautious of their own posting part of that really feels like just helping understand the paradigm that like all of this shit is public um and it kind of reminds me weirdly of like in the earlier days of the internet you kind of needed to like know where you were going in order to find things and then google of course indexed everything feels like we're kind of like moving into our indexing era um not literal indexing of what's on chain but the visualizing of what's happening on chain. Um, I'm curious if you have specific thoughts on what visualization of on-chain data might look like as we like sort of move into hopefully more consumer experiences. Totally. You know, a big one on our end that we think about a lot is like rich social context. So going from a place of like an Etherscan transaction with an ETH address and not a lot of information to like an avatar, username, handle, full name, bio associated with that user when they're doing that action. Uh, and, and being able to source that information, not only from the chain, but also from Lens, Farcaster, Mirror, Blue Sky, or wherever else the user has has given that, that data. Um, 
that I think is really interesting. And, and one step further is actually your social graph in the context of those things. So really like the way, like on Yup, for example, when, you, when, it, when a friend mints an NFT, you'll see it. If you click on that NFT, you'll see all of your friends who own that NFT as well. Um, Farcaster is now, Warpcast is now doing notifications that show you a list of people that have minted an NFT. Uh, Once Upon has some really cool features as well. Once Upon is like a better ether scan, I would say. Um, has some really cool features as well in terms of like other ETH addresses that you've interacted with that have also done this action. And and that serves a security use case of like, okay, this is a like safe contract to interact with. But I think it also serves a very social use case of like, oh, I should, I you know, I should also participate in this and like a sense of belonging. And this is what my friends are doing and like a form of social proof that I think is really interesting. And so definitely for us, that's something we think a lot about, you know, getting to a place where every transaction that we want to show on Yelp as a piece of content looks the way a piece of content will look like a traditional social avatar human readable username you know uh action that's 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 understandable for an average person rather than something that's really sophisticated timestamp hash blah 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 like you don't really need all of that um i think the other issue like i but and then on that front i'd love to see even more more things be built in that direction because i think like you said it still feels very like a pre-google internet era and specifically Etherscan, it was built for people who like want to interact with smart contracts directly, want to check that transactions actually went through. Like it's a very secure technical product. And I think on the on the on the block explorer side, I think we, we we're we we're going to see some really exciting, like very friendly, social, like here's what my friends have done kind of thing. I think Zerion is probably a solid example of this. Um, or the way Rainbow is approaching some of this stuff, I think is a decent example. But I think people should push that even further. Like, you know, what does the Block Explorer look like that's like social first or content first or um, NFTs first rather than transactions, right? Um, that, that holds itself to a certain standard of a consumer experience in terms of human readable accounts and, and things like that that I think would be quite relevant. Totally. Yeah. Um, I'm very excited to see how that space evolves. Um, Nir, this was so wonderful. I always appreciate your thoughts on Web3 Social and protocols and interfaces and all the things. Where can people learn more about you and what you're building at Yup? Uh, you can check out Yup at yup.io um, or sign up for our mobile waitlist at mobile.yup.io. We have a really awesome mobile app that allows you to do all these features. Uh, you can also find me at nir.eth anywhere. Um, that's the advantage of having one universal identity. Uh, <laughs> I'll see you guys on the metaverse or whatever. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. 